Amen. It is that mercy that we was just sung about that we're invited today in the sermon series to meet Jesus, a life like no other. If you will grab your Bible with me and stand and uh, turn to the book of First John, as Pastor Bruce will be uh, continuing in his series on uh, assurance of uh, salvation. And today we're going to meet Jesus, a life like no other. And we will be reading First John. We'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find it on your pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 708. So listen with me, or listen to me as I read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Father, we thank you for your word. We come to you this morning and ask that uh, we would just have open hearts and minds to learn from, from, your, from your word. Uh, and that we would encounter Jesus, a uh, life that is like no other. Uh, who has come and who has died and who has given us eternal life. And we might find assurance of our salvation uh, in your word and uh, live a life that is uh, pleasing and honoring and brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, thank you, Zach, for leading us in our scripture reading. And thank you, Sarah. Beautiful song. Great words. Thank you, instrumentalists. Wonderful job playing. And uh, just a, a great... Uh, music set that we got to participate in. We're, as Zach said, we're continuing in a new series that we began last Sunday uh, through the book of 1 John, a series we're calling simply Assurance. And really, we're, we're answering the question, how can you know for sure that you have eternal life? Because that's the question John answers in this book of 1 John. And so this series began last Sunday, Memorial Day weekend, and it will take us through the summer. We'll end it on Labor Day weekend. And uh, kind of threw out a challenge for, to read through the book of 1 John five times. Or at least read through it once. And so you find this reading plan in your bulletin there. And I want to ask you just to take it out, look at it. It's an uh, insert there. How many read through 1 John one already last week? Just like, all right, oh, several of you did. Great, awesome. And again, let me encourage you. Uh, it's not too late to begin. Just because it was last week, you can still start. And the whole goal is to read through, there's five chapters, and to read one chapter Monday, and then one chapter on Tuesday, through Monday through Friday. And if you do that, you'll read through the book of 1 John in one week, because there's five chapters. And it's really easy to read, it doesn't take a lot of time, and, and just to familiarize yourself with it and read through it uh, five different times. And on the back side of the bulletin, it's just some little it's some information, uh, it's an introduction and background to the book of 1 John. And I encourage you to read this. It's kind of what we went over last Sunday as well. But nonetheless, we want to continue in this series. In fact, we said last Sunday, and I'll say it again, the greatest thing in all the world is to, is to have eternal life. And the second is to know that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And as I already said, this is why John wrote this little book here, so that we can have assurance of this, so we can know for sure. And the problem in John's day, 
In fact, it's even the problem in our day, but especially in John's day, there were deceivers in the church who were teaching a false view of Jesus that was causing many believers in the church in John's day to doubt their salvation, to question their salvation, to, to wonder, do I really have eternal life or not? And these deceivers, in what they were doing, is, is promoting a false view, and we can almost say it like this, they were promoting fake news about Jesus Christ. We've seen an invasion of fake news here in our own country uh, in the last year, in the last two or three years, but especially in this last year. But fake news is not a new thing. It's not a new invention. Fictional media outlets have been around for a long time. As Melanie McManus writes, back in the old days when people got their news mainly from papers, magazines, radio, and television, it was generally easy to figure out when someone was pulling your leg. Pretty much anything in the National Enquirer, how many remember that magazine? All right, you're old enough to remember. Uh, pretty much anything in that National Enquirer was suspect. For example, that tabloid often featured stories with outrageous headlines such as, Woman Gives Birth to Alien. And you would see that, you know, you're checking out the grocery store and you're like, yeah, right, no way, is that true or not? Yeah, we may laugh at such titles, she goes on to write, but what's not so funny is that in the last decade or two, with the growth of the internet and social media, fake news stories and entire fake news sites have proliferated. In fact, fake news stories have become so viral that social media channels like Facebook have been criticized for facilitating the spread of disinformation, which has even led them now to make changes in the way they handle news partnerships in an attempt to filter out these false stories. In November, just this last November of 2016, Stanford University researchers made an alarming discovery. Here's what they discovered, that across the United States, many Young people, and especially high school and college-age students that the study focused on here, says it can't, they can't tell the difference between a reported news article, a persuasive opinion piece, and a corporate ad. This lack of media literacy makes young people vulnerable to getting duped by, quote, fake news, which can have real consequences. Just like in John's day. We constantly encounter fake news. And we also encounter fake news about Jesus Christ. And the consequences, listen, of getting duped are eternal. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Gospel truth matters. Gospel truth matters. What you believe about Jesus matters for eternity. In other words, what you believe about Jesus is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. Gospel truth matters. Now, we looked at this a little bit last Sunday in the introduction to this book, and we see this in John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and what John says, and this is the testimony. In other words, this isn't fake news that John's writing about. This is truth. And he says this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life, eternal life, is where? Where is it found? 
It's in His Son, He says. Jesus, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then He states in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe. Gospel truth matters. What you believe about Jesus matters. And He says to these things, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So here's the question. In a, not just a post-Christian world, we are in a post-truth world now. And in a post-truth world, how can you tell fake news about Jesus from what is true? How can you ensure you're not being bamboozled? That's the question John answers when it comes to the truth about Jesus Christ. John knew that it was absolutely essential to get the Jesus question right. We are living in a day when new versions of Christianity emerge in an effort to make gospel truth easier to swallow. Deceivers are promoting a view that denies the existence of sin, denies the existence of hell, denies the need for a Savior like Jesus. And what's interesting is John doesn't necessarily attack the deceivers, the false teachers per se. Instead, what he does right out of the gate in this book, is he counters the fake news about Jesus by presenting the truth of who Jesus is. Because in the end, it all comes down to whether or not we believe in the real Jesus that is revealed in his word. That's what matters. It's a life and death decision. What do you believe about God's Son, Jesus Christ? And so John begins this little book of his by declaring the truth about Jesus. And in doing so, it's almost as if he is saying to us, look, meet Jesus. Here he is. Look at his life because it is a life like no other. Now, what I want us to do is kind of break this down into three simple points here of looking at the life of Jesus Christ. Look at it with me. Number one, examine the facts of Jesus' life. Examine the facts. And the reason we want to examine the facts is because John wants us to know something about Jesus. He wants us to know the facts of who Jesus is. He wants us to know that Jesus is the eternal, and then he uses this phrase to describe Jesus. He is the eternal word of life, who was revealed to us in real life. Notice the first two verses. Look what he writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That's Jesus he's speaking about. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So why does John call Jesus the word of life? Because Jesus is to us what our words are to others. Listen, our words, what we say, what we speak, reveal to others what we think and how we feel. Jesus reveals to us the mind and heart 
of God. We know God because we know Jesus. In other words, is what Jesus is saying, or John is saying here. And Jesus has been revealed to us in the flesh, but also in the Word, the written Word. We talked about that last Sunday. Jesus is the living manifestation. He is the living means of communication between God and us. Therefore, to know Jesus, meet this life, look at this life, to know Him is to know God the Father. And John wants us to know the truth about Jesus. Why? Because there are these deceivers, these false teachers who are promoting fake news about Jesus. And it was causing doubt among the real believers. So in these first two verses, John emphasizes two facts concerning the life of Jesus, a life like no other. Look at the first fact here. Fact number one, Jesus, John says, has eternally existed with the Father. He has eternally existed with the Father. If you drop down to verse 2, John says Jesus is that eternal life which was with the Father. And then John kind of explains what this means when he says in verse 1 that Jesus is that which was from the beginning. And so John is using this expression to tell us that Jesus has always eternally existed with the Father as God. John wrote in his gospel, uh, you have four gospels in the Bible. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the same guy that wrote 1 John is the author of the gospel of John. And it's interesting what he writes in the very first chapter, how he starts off in that book. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. Look, listen to what he says. He says, in the beginning was the word. There's his description for Jesus again, the Word, one of John's favorite descriptions for Christ. In the Word, he says, was with God. In the Word was God. He was with God in the very beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been, ma been made. In other words, what John wants us to know up front about this Christ, about Jesus, is there has never been a time when Jesus has not existed. Never. He was before the beginning. He was in the beginning and from the beginning. Jesus was there when creation began. Do you realize that? All the way back to Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning, God. And then the pronouns are plural from there on in chapter 1 and 2. In, in reference to the Trinity, God, Jesus was there. God was there. God the Spirit was there. Jesus was there in the beginning. When creation began, he is not part of our creation. He is the source of creation. And Jesus' existence, by the way, did not begin when he was born at Bethlehem, when we celebrate Christmas. That was his beginning in the flesh that we're going to see here in a minute. Jesus declared his eternal existence in John 8, verse 58, when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And that is indicating that he is the God of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God spoke to Moses, I am who I am. It's continual. No beginning, no end. One pastor described Jesus' eternal existence this way. You'll have to think about his words here for a minute. Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father, but no heavenly mother. Who had an earthly mother, but no earthly father 
who was older than his mother and who was as old as his father. Now, you have to think about that for a moment. Here's the first fact. Jesus has eternally existed with the Father. That means there was never a time when Jesus was not, and there will never be a time when Jesus will not be. He had no beginning, and he will have no ending. Jesus is eternal. But there's a second emphasis, a second, second fact that John wants us to know here about Jesus, that he was physically manifested in the flesh. Physically manifested in the flesh. John makes this clear in verse 2, speaking of Jesus, the word of life, when he says, the life was manifested. That is, the eternal Jesus now became visible to humanity. He was not hidden, but he was revealed to us in human flesh for all to see. How does John know this? How can we trust what John is saying is true here? Well, because John was there. That's why. John is an eyewitness to the very life of Jesus Christ manifested in the flesh. And so this is not hearsay that John's writing about. This is not some secondhand account that John is recording for us. This is his own eyewitness testimony. John was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so John says now with authority as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, the authority of an eyewitness in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. And when John says we there, who do you think he's referring to? Well, at a minimum, he's referring to him along with the other disciples of Jesus Christ. Perhaps he's even referring to other followers of Christ during his time. But at a minimum, we know it includes the 12 disciples here. And notice what John says about this. He says, they, they heard Jesus with their ears. And John repeats this in verse 3 for emphasis. They heard Jesus speak time after time. They heard Jesus speak not stuff that is fake or made up, not stories to make up to promote Jesus' agenda or anything like that. They heard Jesus speak truth, God's truth, to promote God's redemptive plan for mankind. They also, they saw Jesus with their very eyes. In fact, John states this three times in three verses. For three years, John says, we looked upon this life like no other. We looked upon Jesus. We gazed upon him. We watched his every move. We watched his life. For three years, we followed him. We lived with him. We ate with him. We know this guy better than anybody. And then he says they touched Jesus with their hands. In other words, Jesus, he's emphasizing here, was not a phantom or a ghost. He was real flesh and blood human being. And then John says, because of that, we also shared the life of Christ. We shared Jesus with our mouths. They testified about Jesus and declared him to many people. And John is emphasizing here, really, the historical reality of Jesus Christ in the flesh. John says, I bear witness to this. Now, that's an interesting phrase. 
Because what John is saying, in other words, is as an eyewitness to this life, a life like no other, he is saying, I would swear in a court of law that Jesus was real. This is not fake news. This is the truth about Jesus Christ. John intends for his eyewitness testimony about Jesus to strengthen the faith of these Christians in these churches that he's writing to, as well as us even today. At the same time, he intends for his testimony about Christ to weaken the influence of the false teachers, these deceivers who were denying the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. You say, why, why is this so important? What, what, what's John getting at? Well, John is encountering something here. And he is countering an early form of false teaching in the church. It was called Gnosticism. And that word Gnosticism is based on a Greek word that simply means knowledge. And so these Gnostics, they felt they had superior knowledge to everyone else. In fact, they thought they were so intellectual and so sophisticated, to, there was no way they were going to believe that God would actually come to earth in a human flesh. That's just an impossibility. We're too intellectual and superior, and we have more knowledge than you do. You think this attitude is still floating around in our world today? Oh, yeah. They believed everything material was evil. That is, everything physical was evil, everything spiritual was good. And, uh, and I also believe that salvation came by some mystical, even secretive knowledge. And they were the ones who had it. So you better listen to us and us only. And as you might imagine, this bred extreme arrogance and pride among the Gnostic factions, and there were several of them, and it led them to deny with great fervency the incarnation of Jesus Christ, with basically, that word incarnation just means God came in the flesh. They denied his humanity, they denied his deity as fully God, fully human. And when you deny both of those things, you are in essence denying the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And that is what John is countering here. And that is why he starts off this book with the truth about Jesus Christ. You see, John's testimony is a direct challenge to the fake news of the Gnostics. John is declaring, you are wrong here. He wasn't too politically correct. This is why what you believe about Jesus matters. Notice this in your notes coming up in the screen. If you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't matter what you're right about. If you are wrong here... Listen, it doesn't matter what you're right about. Listen to me on this one. You can be right about a gazillion things, but if you are wrong about the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are damned to hell. That's the seriousness of what John's writing about here. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? It's the gospel. Gospel truth matters. And so if you're wrong about this, it doesn't matter what else you're right about. What you believe about 
Jesus is an eternal matter of life and death. Listen, false teaching and false doctrine always begins with a wrong view about Jesus Christ, the gospel. Beware, Gnosticism is not dead. It is only disguised today in new garb. Any teaching that denies the deity and humanity of Jesus, any teaching that denies his atonement for sin on the cross is false teaching. It is fake news about Jesus. This is the great stumbling block. People have always stumbled over this truth about Jesus since the days of John until even our day today. And pastor and author John Piper, he nails it on this. And he, in 1985, he preached a sermon on this very topic, and I want to quote his words on what he says to this. This is over 30 years ago, and he nails it in what he says here. Listen to his words. Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it is so much the mystery of divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. The stumbling block, listen, is that if the doctrine is true... Every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out of and into history in the form of a particular inspired book, the Bible, that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the Incarnation. When God becomes a man, He strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says that we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Who does he think he is? He's God. That's who he is. Jesus Christ is God. And he's revealed to us in the flesh. What you believe about Jesus matters. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great non-negotiable. We must not depart from that which we have received from the beginning, as John says. What we believe about Jesus is a doctrinal test of whether or not we are a true believer or just a deceiver. As John writes in 2 John 1.7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Jesus is a life like no other. Do you know this Jesus? 
And does he know you? So examine the facts of Jesus' life. He has eternally existed with the Father, and he was physically manifested in the flesh, but don't stop there. Oh, no, don't stop there. Go to point number two here and experience the fellowship of Jesus' life. John wants to share this life like no other. And so John says, I saw it, and now I want to share it. What John experienced in Jesus, he wanted others to experience too. And so he writes here in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is, although we have never seen nor heard nor touch Jesus like John did, John is telling us here that we can still experience the fellowship of Jesus' life in a way that is just as real as the fellowship John experienced 2,000 years ago. Now that is mind-boggling. That is amazing. Fellowship. Probably every one of us have heard that term, but what is it? especially if you have grown up in church. This word sometimes seems a little sappy and superficial in our Christian vocabulary, especially when it conjures up images of coffee and donuts before church. And aren't you thankful for Rick Powers, who brings the donuts every morning? Yeah. Give it up for Rick! Yeah! And aren't you thankful for Jackie Nichols and Dane and Dana, who make the coffee every Sunday morning? Give it up for them! Amen. We love our coffee and donuts here at church. But folks, fellowship goes way beyond that. It's much more than that. This word means far more than that. The biblical meaning of fellowship is a deep sharing of things in common. In fact, the Greek word for fellowship literally means to share something in common. And what is it that believers share in common? Jesus Christ. Life in Jesus means we experience the fellowship of Jesus' life, which has a vertical dimension as well as a horizontal dimension to it. So notice these two dimensions here. Vertically, when we have life in Christ, when we know Jesus, when we have trusted Him as our Savior, we have fellowship with Jesus, and out of that fellowship, we, John says, we experience fellowship with God the Father. But what? What in the world do I have in common with God the Father? God is holy. Let's be honest, I'm not. Just ask my wife. My two boys, they'll tell you. And so how can I have fellowship with God, who is holy and I'm not? What do we have in common here? I have nothing in common with God. In fact, John says, late, right after this, we'll look at this next Sunday in verses 5 and 6, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And yet when I'm honest about my life and I look in the recesses of my heart, there is so much darkness, sin. And if I say we have 
fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, John says. We're in the dark, God's in the light, and there's this great gap between us and God. So how can we have fellowship with God the Father who is so holy and we are so sinful? Oh, here's how. This is beautiful. Jesus has bridged the gap so that we can now have fellowship with God the Father. Jesus bridged that gap by being manifested in the flesh and dying on the cross to pay the price for our sins, which made a way for God to forgive us and to adopt us into his family, to redeem us so that we're born again into his family. This is why what you believe about Jesus Christ matters. Peter, it's interesting what he says about this. You go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, and he says that when we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation, we put our faith in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. And Peter says that when we do that, we actually become, and he uses this phrase, partakers of divine nature, speaking of God. Whoa! The word partakers there that Peter uses, do you know, is the same Word, it comes from the same Greek word that is translated fellowship here in 1 John. You say, oh, what's that mean? Oh, believe me, it's incredible what that means and what Peter's saying and John's saying here. Because Jesus took on the nature of man so that we might take on the nature of God. That's what Peter's saying. Do you know what that means? It means this, that sinners like me, sinners like you, can now have fellowship with God the Father through life in Jesus Christ. What you believe about Jesus matters. So life in Jesus means horizontally we experience fellowship with God the Father, but get this, this is cool. Horizontally, we experience fellowship with one another. With one another. Listen, when... Because I am born of God and you are born of God, that means we're born from the same womb. Not physically, spiritually. We're born from the womb of God's grace. We're part of God's eternal family now. All of us who have life in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings us into the family of God. And that's the reason Paul calls this the fellowship of the gospel in Philippians 1.5, and the fellowship in the Spirit in Philippians 2.1. Because only believers in Jesus can experience this kind of authentic fellowship with one another. Listen, we may, we may have some friendships with unbelievers. We may even experience some camaraderie with unbelievers, if we're on a sports team, a choir team, or whatever the case may be, camaraderie with your coworkers, who you know who you work with, go to school with, whatever neighborhood. You, you go to your neighborhood pool. You know some friends and neighbors, and you have some camaraderie there. And we may have relationships with all these people, but listen to me. John is telling us that only believers in Jesus Christ share genuine fellowship with one another. It's the kind of fellowship that tr transcends all of that. It transcends even that of family and national identity or even ethnic heritage. The fellowship that exists between Christ followers, it is far deeper. It is far richer than cheering for even the same college team. Let me give you an example. In my grow group that Darla and I are part of, 
Alan Langford, uh, God bless him, new family in our church here. He is a KU fan, and he is not ashamed to say it. Thank you, Alan. And so when Alan and I, we didn't know each other before he started coming here, but when we found out he was a he was a KU fan, and I was a KU fan. Immediately, that connected us. And we had some camaraderie between that because of that. It was, it's glorious, man. We get together in our, our grow group. And we're wearing our KU shirts and, and hats, and, and you know, we're, it, it connected us. But that is not what bonds us together. That is not what makes us experience true and genuine and authentic fellowship. That comes from, he knows Jesus Christ as his Savior, and I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And that's why we now can embrace some of the Missouri fans in our group. <laughs> and we can have fellowship with them. It's why that, that Alan and I can put our arm around uh, Ashley Davis, who is a Cardinals fan, and we can have fellowship with her even. It's why I can embrace Jim Collinsworth, who is a Red Sox fan. You see, the reality is God has made us all unique and different, has he not? We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different preferences. We all have different likes, tastes. We even come from different ethnicities, different makeups, you name it, we have it all. And yet the one thing that brings us together, that unites us, listen to me, is Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not just that, it's the same beliefs in Jesus Christ that unites us together. That is what allows us to experience true, genuine Fellowship, John says. It's a glorious thing. Again, this is why what you believe about Jesus matters. Look at this. The same beliefs about the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of true fellowship. Now let me explain this because I don't want you to miss it. I want you to see this. What is interesting here, what John is doing is he actually, in these first four verses, he makes the proclamation of Jesus Christ the basis of his fellowship with other believers. Look at it. Look at it in verse 3. He writes in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. We proclaim to you that you also now may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now this is significant because what John is saying is something like this. In order to experience fellowship with his readers, the believers in these churches he's writing to, as well as to even us who are reading it today, John tells them what he believes about Jesus. In other words, John is saying, since our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, the only way that we can experience fellowship with you is to proclaim to you what we know and what we believe about Jesus whom we have seen and heard. 
In other words, there is no true fellowship among people who don't share the same view of Jesus Christ. As one author observes, when John wants to cultivate fellowship with a group of people, he writes them a letter filled with theology. When Paul wanted to prepare a missionary fellowship to support him and send him on to Spain, he wrote a theological book called Romans. The deeper and stronger you want your fellowship to be, the more theology must be shared. And so in a real way, the place to start in cultivating true fellowship among one another here in our church the place to cultivate true fellowship in our grow groups, wherever you may be, you know what it is? Share with one another what you believe about Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is the Jesus I believe in. This is the gospel. And you do that in course of conversation. And that, you can come from worlds apart, and yet that alone brings you together in fellowship. Our church, this church here, is not unified by whether we are all young or all old. Whether we are all male or all female. Whether we are all white or whether we are all black. Whether we dress the same, talk the same, whether we are artists, hipsters, blue-collar workers, or some other aspect of culture. Listen to me. The one thing that transcends all of that and brings us together in unity, is a common belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the foundation of our true fellowship. And then going beyond our church family, this doesn't mean that we can't have relationships with unbelievers. Please understand that. In fact, on the contrary, we must have relationships in order to share with them this life like no other. In order to declare to them and proclaim to them, to share with them the hope of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they can believe in Him, so that they can know that they have eternal life. It does mean, however, that if fundamental truths of the gospel are denied, it precludes us from having true fellowship with people, no matter how nice or how cool they may be. To say in today's terminology, if somebody claims they are a believer in Christ and yet they deny these fundamental truths of what John is teaching here, it means I ain't calling you bro. You're not my bro. You're not my brother in Christ. That's what it means. So what you believe about Jesus matters. Right belief about Jesus enables you to experience fellowship with Jesus, which then enables you to experience fellowship with God the Father, as well as, on a horizontal plane, fellowship with one another. And right belief about Jesus also enables you to, number three, and this is great, to enjoy the fullness of Jesus' life. John concludes this amazing truth about Jesus with these words in verse 4. Look what he says. In these things we write to you that your joy may be full. 
Now, John is simply echoing the words he had heard from Jesus when he followed Jesus, walked with Jesus, heard Jesus teach. When Jesus proclaimed in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And now John is here and he is repeating the same thing. There is a fullness of joy that is ours in Jesus. Now, what this means is that true joy comes from life in Jesus Christ. It flows out of our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. So in a very real way, the source of our joy, folks, is our fellowship with God and even our fellowship as believers here. That is our source of joy in this world of chaos, in this world of suffering and pain. And even when that suffering and pain comes into your life as a believer, you can still experience joy. Why? Because it's not based on the circumstances or the condition of your life. It is based on the fellowship that you have with God the Father as well as with other believers. That is why a Christian in isolation is almost always a joyless Christian. Because joy flows out of our fellowship with God the Father and our fellowship with one another. Now, is it perfect? Oh, no, because we're human beings, and let's admit it. We have warts, and, you know, but that's where grace comes in. Do you know this kind of joy? See, in, in, in a real way, what John is telling us here is that a joyless Christian is an oxymoron. And so if you're here this morning, and if you did a, an honest evaluation of your life, do I experience joy? And at what level do I experience joy in my life? And, and if your joy is mostly dependent on whether the royals win or lose, or whether your spouse is happy with you or not, whether your kids are honoring and obeying you or not, whether things at work go well, whether you get that pay raise, whether you get to take that vacation, whether you get this new car or this, 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 that, if that's all your, your joy level is. And really, it's not even true joy, it's happiness. You experience moments of happiness if that's the level that you experience, listen, John is encouraging us then to do a heart-to-heart -heart evaluation whether we really know Jesus Christ, whether we have eternal life. Do we have and experience true joy? Joy that comes from fellowship with God. Joy that comes from fellowship with one another. Because here's what happens. In this world of ours, listen to me, we seek joy and happiness, and we seek it based on what fulfills the flesh. And so if it makes me feel good, it's, it's an appeasement of the flesh. My flesh wants this, and so I go seek this. I go do that. Because it gives me a momentary moment of, of happiness, and, and I get this euphoria, but it's all in, for the flesh. 
And we need to understand, we are much more than flesh. We have a soul. We are spirit beings. And God wants to come in and do a work in your spirit and in your soul. That's why we are born again. And that's where true joy is experienced. It's a spiritual aspect that then impacts every area of our life. And John's concern, and it's my concern as a pastor, I think so many Christians that profess to be Christ followers, their joy level is no different than the world. Because it's on a flesh level instead of a soul level. And where you experience joy is on a soul level. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. So let me ask you, do you know that kind of fellowship and joy? And the foundation of that is, do you have eternal life in Christ? Because the foundation is life in Jesus. With your heads bowed, and as we pray, and we think about the words of John here in these first four verses. Let me encourage you to evaluate your own heart. Because nothing is more important than what you believe about Jesus. What you believe about Jesus is a matter of eternal life and death. And if you're willing to believe in Jesus for your salvation, to repent of your sin, and to trust Jesus as your Savior, and to be born again, to have a, a regeneration of your heart, of your soul, then you can have eternal life as the gift of God. You can begin to have fellowship with God and enjoy the fullness of joy of life in Jesus. Where are you at in that journey? Will you respond to the Spirit working and drawing you in even now as the praise team sings?